If you have friends who don't listen to podcasts, you can help Inside the Boards and your friends by showing them how to download and stream a podcast on any of your favorite podcatchers, like the Apple Podcasts app, the Podbean app, or even on Spotify. Tell them about Inside the Boards. And here's an appeal from the youngest member of the Inside the Boards team with an argument for listening to podcasts, which I think you will find irresistible. This is Zoran Beeman. Please listen to the Inside the Boards podcast. Thank you. I love podcasts too. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. This is the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1 and Comlex Level 1. I am Patrick Beeman, your host and father of that incredibly irresistibly cute child, Soren Beeman named after the great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And at any rate, today we are getting into some more cardiology stuff. We've got a few examples from our audio cue bank, as well as a discussion of a cardiology question between myself and Amrit Sadhu, the brosencephalon, and some bonus material of a question discussed between Greg Rodden, host of the Physiology by Physio podcast, and our own, well, actually, he's our own team member now, too, but also our own executive producer of the Inside the Boards podcast network, Stuart Bryant. But first, let's hear from the bros in Cephalon, and yours truly, right now. So let's do some questions. Um, a 33-year-old G2P1 comes to the office because of poor diabetic control. She is currently at 18 weeks gestation and admits to having poor control of her type 1 diabetes. Family history is non-contributor and examination shows a gravid abdomen with a um, fundal height of 19 centimeters. An abdominal ultrasound is ordered. Which of the following is the most likely congenital abnormality? shown on the ultrasound. A, amelia, B, anencephaly, C, sacral agenesis, D, spina bifida, or E, ventriculoseptal defect. And the answer here, well, do you want me to give the answer? Because some, some participants want to like think through them out loud. Sure, we can go through this question actually. All right. So, so you guys think about that. Which is the following is the most uh, likely abnormality on ultrasound? And we'll get to the answer. Walk us through it. Right. So, uh, I guess this is a good good time to, I guess, just mention one of the strategies that I feel really helped me with these board style questions. Uh, I guess before we dive into the other ones. Yeah. And it's a really simple thing that that a resident I was rotating with sort of opened my eyes to. And it was just to always read the, the first sentence of the question of the vignette and then read the question line of the vignette before you dive into the actual details. You know, so I find that that, you know, it saves me time while reading the vignette. I can point out red herrings a lot more easily. And it, it also puts emphasis on keywords like most likely or least likely or best next step or the best first step, which a lot of the times makes or breaks, you know, a question whether or not you struggle with it. So I think here, knowing most likely 
congenital abnormality is really important because a lot of these certainly are common and are associated with the issue in this pregnancy, which is uncontrolled or poorly controlled type 1 diabetes. So just saying that and keeping in mind most likely, and then as well from your knowledge base, from the flashcards or whatever you're using to access the content, knowing the association with diabetes and congenital heart defects is essentially the missing link here and will will point you towards ventricular septal defect. That's the correct answer. So yeah. I, I think this this is sort of like an interesting question and, and raises a, a few issues. And I think I've pointed this out before on our, our podcast, but every board style question is going to have a vignette attached to it. And you need to read the vignette in order to answer the question. So they can't ask you or they won't ask you direct things like, which of the following is the most common congenital abnormality in fetuses of moms who have poorly controlled diabetes? Like that will never occur. That's why you have a bunch of text followed by an actual interrogatory. But this is one way particularly to test sort of epidemiologic information. Mm -hmm. And so which of the following is the most likely abnormality? In order to know that, you need to know what is overall most common and what is also in particular associated with diabetes itself. If you Precisely. only know the latter, you're going to get it wrong. You're going you're gonna to know something important about you know, this, this particular topic, but you're going to get the actual question wrong. So VSD should be remembered is not only the most common cardiac anomaly associated with poorly controlled diabetes in pregnancy, it's also the most common overall congenital uh, heart defect. Right. So there's that. And then I don't want to take over here, but how else, um, what other important points would you offer here? The only other things I really wanted to say was stemming from exactly what you just uh, alluded to, and that would be the distractors in the options here. You know, anencephaly and spina bifida are both, you know, associated and can be complications of pregestational diabetes that's poorly controlled. But like you said, it's not the most common. So having both of those pieces of information is, is the key to answering questions like this. Yeah. And then just quickly, the amelia, um, which was answer choice A, refers to the absence of limbs. That is not associated with pregestational diabetes, but you have to remember, is associated with a famous drug, thalidomide. And it's not to be confused with sacral agenesis, which is sort of like pathognomonic for a type 1 diabetes uh, diagnosis. If you see it on, you know, like a 10 to 12 week ultrasound, sacral agenesis, the likelihood that mom has poorly controlled diabetes is, is pretty solid. Mm -hmm. And sacral agenesis is just um, abnormal development of the uh, lower extremity, lower spine. So, and then spina bifida and encephaly are common uh, neural tube defects, which, as you mentioned, can be associated with uh, diabetes, but aren't the most common. So, some pretty good high yield points there. So. For sure. And here is an example from our All Audio QBank. Go download the Inside the Boards iOS beta app for even more in-depth question dissections like the ones you hear on this show. We're adding more of those over the next month. Plus, there are straight-up, audio-optimized, board-style questions to help you study on the go with the Step 1 version powered by ExamCircle and Lecturio. 
and the Step 2 version powered by Online MedEd. A 69-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension and type 2 diabetes presents to the primary care clinic for intermittent headaches during the past two weeks. The pain is most prominent on the right side of her head. Her current headaches are random and are sometimes associated with blurry vision. She denies any prior history of headaches, including migraines. She is currently experiencing symptoms now while at the clinic. Review of symptoms is unremarkable except for recent fatigue and morning stiffness of her shoulders, which she believes is a result of babysitting her two young grandchildren. What is the most appropriate next step for this patient? Is it A. Artery biopsy B. CT head C. Order erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR or D, administer glucocorticoids? And the correct answer is D, administer glucocorticoids. New onset temporal headaches accompanied with visual disturbance in an elderly female is highly suggestive of giant cell arteritis, a granulomatous vasculitis. Due to the risk of vision loss, high-dose glucocorticoids should be started immediately once the condition is suspected. Up to 50% of patients with giant cell arteritis may also have polymyalgia rheumatica, an autoimmune disease characterized by pain and weakness of large muscle groups, which primarily affects the elderly. This explains the patient's recent fatigue and morning stiffness of her shoulders. The gold standard for diagnosis is temporal artery biopsy. Although up to 44% of patients with clinical manifestations of giant cell arteritis may have a negative biopsy. This is due to reasons such as prior treatment and inadequate biopsy size, as the affected artery often has skip lesions. Recent evidence suggests that ultrasound may be a useful alternative. Regardless of modality, treatment should not be delayed while the diagnosis is pending. ESR and also CRP are two labs that can aid in the diagnosis as they are indicative of systemic inflammation and are often elevated in giant cell arteritis. Due to the risk of blindness, treatment should be performed first before obtaining labs. CT of the head may be useful in detecting tumors of the brain, which can present as new-onset headache and changes in vision. This patient's acute history is more suggestive of giant cell arteritis. Here's one more from our all-audio QBank. A 59-year-old man presents with exertional chest pain for the past couple of months. He says that the pain is substernal and is relieved with rest. His physical examination is unrevealing. An electrocardiogram is performed and the results are normal, but an exercise tolerance test reveals ST-segment depression in chest leads V1 through V4. He is prescribed nitroglycerin to be taken only during the first half of the day. Which of the following statements best describes the reason behind the timing of this medication? Is it A, to prevent collapse, B, to avoid nitrate headache, C, to prevent methemoglobinemia, or D, to avoid nitrate tolerance? And the correct answer is D, to avoid nitrate tolerance. Patients on chronic nitrate therapy may develop nitrate tolerance. Tolerance is a pharmacologic phenomenon which occurs due to repeated use of a drug. The drug effect progressively lowers with the same dosage and the dosage may be needed to increase to achieve the same effect. However, nitrate tolerance can be prevented by avoiding a continuous steady-state plasma concentration of nitrate. Morning-afternoon-night schedule may produce a continuous plasma steady-state of nitrate, thus leading to drug tolerance. Morning-afternoon scheduling gives a nitrate-free interval in the plasma throughout the evening. 
thus preventing drug tolerance and preserving nitrate efficacy. And finally, let's hear what Greg and Stuart have to say about some cardiology stuff. Just to get us started off here, a a 64-year-old Caucasian male undergoes cardiac bypass surgery without any complications. You want to wean this patient from bypass. For a standard weaning procedure, it would not be necessary to obtain which of the following to calculate systemic vascular resistance. Is it A, the mean arterial pressure, B, the cardiac output, C, the right atrial pressure or central venous pressure, or D, the mean filling pressure? Tell me what the answer here is, Greg. So... I believe that the answer is D, mean filling pressure. And this is one of those questions where you kind of just need to know what the equation is, unfortunately. So let's, let's get into it. So systemic vascular resistance uh, can be calculated by uh, first subtracting the right atrial pressure from the mean arterial pressure and dividing by cardiac output, uh, and then multiplying by 80. <laughs> <laughs> That's very, very exciting. I, I think the 80 just gets it into the right units that you need, like the dynes per something, something. For systemic vascular resistance, like this is the thing you need to know is this equation. And there's really no other way around knowing that uh, it's the mean arterial pressure and you need the central venous pressure or the right atrial pressure, which they should be equivalent or fairly close and then you want the cardiac output, which if on the exam, you're probably not going to be given the cardiac output or maybe even the mean arterial pressure, uh, but they will give you the number so you can calculate those. Right. The easy thing, I guess, is cardiac output. That's uh, heart rate times stroke volume, right? Correct. And then the other one is the mean arterial pressure. And I always forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you have it off the top of your head? Uh, yeah. So mean arterial pressure, I believe, should be two-thirds uh, diastolic plus one-third systolic. It, it usually somewhere runs somewhere between like 70 and, and 100 or 70 and 110 mm-hmm. or so. Uh, and I guess one kind of useful point to point out about mean arterial pressure. So two thirds, two thirds diastolic because most of the time the heart is in diastole. Right. That's kind of a, kind of a helpful point there. Yeah. And those, that's just the average of the pressures over the time. And that works out to be, since you spend more time in diastole, it's going to get the more weight in this equation, right? There we go. Trying to think if there's anything else I really want to cover with this. Let me just add my little hack here for thoroughness, I guess. So on the exam, they're going to give you all these numbers and they're going to throw more numbers than you need just because they want you to know which ones you had to pick, right? Right. I think the only number here that is just a number that they will give to you is going to be your right atrial pressure. And that could be your central venous pressure also. So those are two things that are, they're basically close enough to be synonymous. Mm-hmm. And that that's at least how I understand, you know, at the right atrium, that's basically the returning pressure from the rest of the body 
So that's going to be equivalent to your central venous pressure. Now, if they're giving you all these other, like your pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or your left atrial pressure, you should know that those are all pretty low numbers, right? Uh, I don't know if you have them remembered off the top of your head, but I'm pretty sure they're generally, uh, if there is, it's in diastole, it's going to probably be, you know, less than 10, right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Uh, I, I think the right atrium is one to eight. The right ventricle in diastole will probably be about the same. And then it, it goes up to maybe 30. The pulmonary artery is a tiny bit higher. And the left atrium is, you know, probably less than 10. And this is assuming that everything is normal in the heart. And the point, I, I'm I'm bringing up all these numbers, not because I'm saying you need to remember them for the test, but because they are all fairly low and similar, they are not going to have this marked, they're, they're not going to massively change systemic vascular resistance. So my point is that you can kind of interchange a lot of these numbers if there's a pressure that's pretty much under 10 on the exam, you might be able to swap that in for your right atrial pressure. Now, it's just better if you know that you need the right atrial pressure altogether, but if you're not sure which number to use and the answer choices are not all very specific and similar, uh, you might be able to get away with swapping out one of these pressures. Make sense? Yeah, I think think that makes sense. Yeah, I, I get that that's, uh, you, you, you either know it or you don't, and it's kind of hard to really fudge your way through this equation. Unfortunately, there's some medicine you just have to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. And then the, the last part of this, uh, so, so while the question asks, you know, which, which part, what information do you need to calculate systemic vascular resistance? And we mentioned mean, mean arterial pressure, right atrial pressure, and cardiac output. The question also incorporates, you know, what is mean filling pressure? Um, so, so we ought to, we ought to cover that. Uh, mean filling pressure is the pressure that would exist at zero cardiac output due to distension within the circulatory system. If the heart stops, there is no pressure difference between the arterial and venous sides. And the basal pressure that remains is the mean filling pressure. So when the heart starts pumping again, it will have an end diastolic pressure equal to the mean filling pressure. So when the heart stops and there's no pressure differential between the right and the left sides or between the arterial and the venous system, the pressure that remains, the pressure that's exerted on the vessels by the, by the volume or the, the blood that's in the vessels is the mean filling pressure. And so I think that okay that might help to to close out the uh, yeah the conversation and, and that's just what's left over right you know they, you have yeah, you have exactly. something as long as there is the presence of a fluid in this system it's going to have a basal pressure and yeah. uh, that's our mean filling pressure and that's completely irrelevant for calculating our mean our systemic vascular resistance but. It's good to know, for sure. That's all for this episode. We've got more in the Study Smarter series. Check out the last episode, one of our 
mini psych episodes. Our focus this series throughout are uh, some mini episodes on psych and neuro brought to you by Elizabeth Beeman, who happens to be the mom of that incredibly cute child who opened this episode. And don't forget, we opened the second Listen, Learn, Live monthly contest whose grand prize will be payment of your USMLE or Comlex exam fee, a over $600 value. Just click the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash paymyusmle for details. We'll be announcing the three winners from the first monthly contest, most likely on the next episode. So get a free subscription to the Audio Bank and possibly save like 650 bucks. Thank you for listening and truly thank you for spreading the word about ITB, doing things like leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We know your time is limited and our goal in taking our time to do this show is to help you get some time back, mainly so you have things to do in life. But if you can take like even two minutes of that time you get back by listening to our uh, shows, and can leave a review and a rating on iTunes, it would be most appreciated.